Prophecy is a complete, low-code data engineering platform for the enterprise. Prophecy enables all your teams on Apache Spark with a unique, low-code designer. While you visually build your data flows, Prophecy generates high-quality Spark code on Git. Then, you can schedule Spark workflows with Prophecy's low-code airflow. Not only that, Prophecy provides end-to-end visibility into your data flows with metadata search and column-level lineage. For enterprises, in addition to developing new workflows, data teams also need to migrate thousands of old proprietary ETL workflows to the cloud. For that, Prophecy has built a transpiler that automatically converts ab initio Informatica, SSIS, and Alteryx workflows to high-quality Spark code. Learn more at www.prophecy.io. In this episode, we speak with Raj Baines, who is the founder and CEO of Prophecy. Previously, Raj was the product manager of Apache Hive at Hortonworks through the IPO. He also headed product management and marketing for a new SQL database startup. Raj continues to actively code in compiler and database technologies. His engineering roles include developing a new SQL database, building CUDA at NVIDIA as a founding engineer, and working as a compiler engineer for Microsoft Visual Studio. Full disclosure, Prophecy is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Super excited to be here and uh, look forward to a fascinating conversation. Let's start with a brief history of data engineering. So my perspective on modern data engineering is if you want to find a meaningful place to start the timeline, my opinion is the best place to start the timeline is the Hadoop MapReduce paper. I would love to get your perspective on why MapReduce and perhaps to a lesser extent the Google File System paper I think that's the other one that's relevant here. Why did those products, those papers, have such a massive influence on the history of software? Sure. So actually, I think to answer that, I will perhaps start a little bit sooner. So I'm coming from the old system space from before Google MapReduce paper, and I've seen you know the world before and after that. And if I were to look back, right, the ETL tools, and I've primarily worked with enterprises, the ETL tools have, you know, have had Abinitio and Informatica, where Abinitio is something that works on large amounts of data (laughs) for large banks, you know, Fortune 500 companies. So it has really been, you know, the performance leader. And Abinitio execution engine is very similar to Apache Spark. And that's what has been used for ETL by a lot of enterprises. And then Informatica was the volume leader, and that's a $10 billion industry in that. Now, the second part is that then you have the enterprise data warehouse with Teradata as the leader. And Teradata, you know, started in 79. In 83, Christmas, Wells Fargo was running a lot of their data on Teradata. And by 86, it was a company of the year. So at this point, you know, in middle 80s, the enterprise data engineering space, ETL as that was called, has been, was set up, right? And then coming to your question, what has happened is that as you had Google and other people come in, they had higher volumes of data. They had higher volumes of data where per unit data, there was lower value. So they wanted more commoditized solution. They wanted to run it on commodity hardware, which wasn't so expensive. They were not going to pay Abinitio and Teradata millions of dollars. So they built their own thing. I think the lasting impact of having, you know, Google file system is, you know, you keep multiple copies around, you get cheap storage. And the MapReduce is essentially 
the long-term impact is that you know in a database when you're processing a query you're going through the filter join aggregate your streaming data and the long-term impact of map reduce is you in the middle of that pipeline you store the data on files so it's easier to recover i think if you look at it in the long arc of history, if you look at what today Spark looks like, what Snowflake looks like, they've got a traditional database optimizer, a traditional database execution engine. Both of them have SQL optimizers. And, you know, so the impact is, it seems it has been more, but but unfortunately, like I believe it has not been as as much as people make it out to be. Hadoop companies today are nowhere, right? It's already a legacy technology. That said, the maturation process of the Hadoop companies has been okay. I mean, they they kind of moved their focus to Spark a little bit. They kind of moved their focus to developing internal technologies. Or, you know, there's I, there's a number of open source projects that came out of the Hadoop companies. I mean, what is sort of the corporate legacy of the Hadoop companies? You worked at Hortonworks. Like, how do you think those companies stand today? And, and what is their impact on the industry? Yes. So I worked on Hadoop. I was the product manager of Apache Hive and Hive was the most used product in the Hadoop stack. A lot of the revenue or I would say vast majority of revenue for Hortonworks and can, Cloud can you do Can you do a quick review on what Hive is? Sure. So Hive is, so as people started to use Hadoop, MapReduce was quite hard to use. So Hive added a SQL layer on top of Hadoop. So it was designed for high throughput. So it was primarily designed for ETL at really hard, large volumes where traditional ETL tools didn't work, right? And the entire sales motion for Cloudera and Hortonworks was we went to customers who had Teradata and we said, you have this very expensive product. 70% of the capacity of Teradata is being used for ETL. And, you know, for that, you don't need the Teradata architecture. You don't need the caches. You don't need the indexing. So why don't you move that workload to Apache Hive, a product that is built for high throughput? And that was the entire sales motion. So Hortonworks, Cloudera, as billion-dollar companies were built on, you know, offloading ETL from Teradata, which is, you know, not as sexy, right? But that's the truth of it. Now... As we go forward, and the other products in the Hadoop stack were used somewhat. Now, the people who did build Hadoop did not read as much research. I remember when I went into Hortonworks, we had to throw away the query optimizer of Hive because it was written as a hack. And then it was like, that's not how query optimizers are written. This is 20-year-old research. So then, then Hive was improved significantly. MapReduce was thrown out right and and a new engine was put in place which and it has evolved to be more and more like an mpp database you know of course with slightly different characteristics of storing those intermediate results that i talked about but then if you look at the impact today there is a consensus as we talk to large enterprises that hadoop is not the future people want to move from hadoop or hive uh, to spark even though you know hive is used significantly more and in the overall scheme of things, today Hadoop stands as a legacy product, same as the other on-premise legacy products. These companies never invested enough in R&D. They never had the margins to do that. And uh, they have fallen behind and they don't have the engineering strength to come back. So, you know, they will slowly wither away is, is my take on that. All right. Very interesting. So, you know, 
I have been inspecting the data engineering space since the beginning, and I have noticed, as I've I've said before in a few different episodes, the biggest surprise to me was the fact that Snowflake became Snowflake and Redshift became these sources of massive data gravity. And a lot of people have built their systems around Snowflake and Redshift. And that surprised me because I always thought that the, the streaming systems looked like they were better abstractions for doing data engineering, like, you know, the flinks of the world, the, the Apache storms of the world, um, even SAMSA, really. Like, I just, I see these things as very interesting glue for building a distributed system. Or you look, you look even more nuanced, the Apache Beam project, I think. But really, the problem is, is that these things are hard to work with, and they're hard to reason about. And so ultimately, our fix to that as an industry has been to move towards Redshift and Snowflake simply because it's easier to understand, like, what is the materialized view you're getting in a given moment? Do you think that's accurate? Is that an accurate perspective? Yeah. So first, I would say that I am surprised that everybody is surprised. Right, because the like you, you said, agree, you agree, everybody is surprised, though, right? I agree, everybody is surprised, and I am hugely surprised by that because, for like I told you, right? So, Abinitio and Informatica, the ETL tools industry was ten billion dollars, and then the data warehouse was twenty billion dollars, right? And you had Teradata and IBM DB2, and and that's if you look at the on-premise footprint. It is one thing that looks like Spark and one thing that looks like Snowflake. And that's what every large enterprise looks like. And the large enterprises run massive workloads. They don't have like a hundred workflows that you can schedule with Airflow. They have tens of thousands to hundred thousand plus. We are working with a Fortune 4 bank. They have more than hundred thousand workflows that run every day, right? So if you look at that, Basically, what has happened in the cloud is an exact replica of that. You got Spark, which is very much like Abinitio, and you got Snowflake, which is very much like Teradata. And now within these, right, if you look at Teradata, you would say, hey, Enterprise Data Warehouse was a $20 billion industry on-premise, and it was one of the largest technology markets. And now, but, you know, 10 billion of that is data engineering or ETL and 10 billion of, you know, the ab initio. So $20 billion is just data engineering on premise, right? So that's what people have used. So the first thing is there is no surprise. Enterprise data warehouse would become one of the primary technologies. So having ending up with Spark and enterprise data warehouses, the two technologies, that is normal and to be expected. The other thing is about streaming, right? Streaming is much harder to do. Streaming also doesn't make sense unless you can do something with the results, right? When you're working, let's say you are a business, you are a bank, you are an insurance company, right? It's like, okay, you got your data for the last four years till, you know, and that is, let's say, four hours old that you ran ran a batch workflow on. Now, if you add to that the data of the last four hours, what is the new decision that you're going to take on that? Hardly anything, right? So streaming will not become big because streaming does not have a real business use case except for narrow use cases. Some, you know, you're doing some machine learning real time, you know, finding fraud or something. So there are those narrow use cases outside of that. If you don't need to do streaming, you should not do streaming because streaming has out of order events, all these extra issues you have to deal with. It's also not 
as cost efficient because you know for me to run a batch job which processes like yesterday's data in one go is much more cost efficient it's simpler to do and you know if something goes wrong it's simpler to recover from so that said you know kafka is becoming more popular as for for certain kind of things and i'll think we'll continue to see that but streaming is this technology which over 15 years has stayed on the fringe people have thought it's going to become mainstream now 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 it never does i don't think it will in the next 10 years i do think kafka will become more important but apart from that it it will stay on the fringes you know it, it feels it feels to me like it's really early days for streaming in in kind of a powerful way i just did two shows about pulsar they're going to air in, in the next few weeks and they kind of blew my mind cuz i had thrown away pulsar in my brain as being you know second second fiddle to kafka and it's actually not so the thing about Pulsar is it, it's a distributed queue to the same extent that Kafka is a distributed queue, but it has configurable storage. So if you think about it, like Kafka is sort of the the Java of the distributed queue. It's garbage collected, basically, I think. Like it, it, it garbage collected in the sense that you don't really think about storage in Kafka. The storage and the memory aren't don't have a deep ab- abstraction. In Pulsar, you have Apache Bookkeeper, and Bookkeeper is a highly configurable storage abstraction. And because you have a highly configurable storage abstraction, you can build multi-data center replication more easily. So I just found it to be a very fascinating case study in what I would argue is data infrastructure. I think Kafka is kind of this data infrastructure middleware thing. Yes, yes, it it is. And I've I've had some other friends who've looked at Pulsar. Uh, one person by the name of Simba, who's you know wrote, written some blogs about it. So there has been a lot of. Uh, so I've heard from some people that it's very interesting. It's not something that I know too much about. But streaming is always exciting, and but but we don't deal with that much streaming in our thing. We do with some spark streaming, but not much. It makes for great podcast episodes. I'll tell you that <laughs> streaming is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we've been building up context, like we've kind of given a bit of your your history and sort of how you think about things. So I saw what you're building with prophecy, and it's definitely taking an approach that makes sense, which is essentially low-code data engineering. You have a low-code layer on top, you have a data engineering system underneath, and to me, this is almost an obvious problem. I have seen other companies attacking this in, in a similar fashion. Um, to me, but, but, but it's almost, to me, this is sort of like, it's like a Hadoop era kind of thing, except it's bigger, where we're, we're, we're basically saying, look, we know we all need to build data engineering systems, we know they need to be easier to build, we know we need to uh, to have people that are essentially like data analyst level talent doing data engineering. Like that would be the ideal if they had a, if they had a data engineering operating system that they could play with, and and that's what kind of the low code enables. And then I see so so like I think if you if you think about it connectively, you know we've solved data engineering from the standpoint of now we have the Unix level abstractions of data engineering. You know we have the Kafka and and Fivetran and High Touch. We have like reverse and forward ETL. We have um, storage at all areas with uh, robust abstractions. We have queuing with robust abstractions. We can essentially do distributed systems data engineering without Paxos level boredom. And Prophecy is able to also exploit what I call, you know, the React revolution. I, I assume you're built in React, right, on the front end? Yes. So built in React, definitely. How I would characterize the space of data engineering is that so one, there is a stark difference between the startup ecosystem and the 
enterprise ecosystem. We happen to be focused on enterprise ecosystem. The use cases end up being quite different, actually. That said, how I would put it is that for data engineering, the processing engines are there, right? So Spark is there, Snowflake is there, Kafka is there. These are all processing engines. And now you can write code on that. But on top of that, the data engineering product, right? If you look at somebody who's been on-premise, they have a visual drag and drop, you know, designer. They have metadata management, column level lineage, scheduling, CI/CD sharing, like none of that really exists, right? So, so where is the snowflake of data engineering product, right? On top, that will you, you land your data into S3 from operational systems in an enterprise. Now you have to do all these transformations, Let's say you do them on Spark, then you load the data into data warehouse and you manage your views and everything. And you can see lineage across all of them. You can search your data sets. Like if you look at all of that and you say, how do I do that? Nothing really exists, right? Let me give you another example. We had a customer come in recently who said, hey, we are looking to move from Abinitio to Databricks and we have 22,000 workflows that we need to move in the first go. And like, okay. And they're like, how do we schedule? They're like, oh, you know, the simple ones are, you know, use cron and the more complex ones use Airflow. But, you know, Airflow doesn't run. Astronomer is improving that, but Airflow doesn't run for more than a thousand workflows. And what are you going to do? Write a thousand schedules one by one, right? With error recovery in each one of them. Works for a startup, right? You have a hundred workflows. Great. You have a small setup, great. You have 22,000 workflows, absolutely does not work. It does not work at the engine and the processing level because Airflow cannot run more than 1,000 workflows. The second thing is the tooling on top, like there's just nothing there. Like how do you manage 22,000 workflows? You're going to manually write Airflow, 22,000 workflows, each with recovery and this and manage dependencies between them. You can't do that. So it's just like, so to your point, the... Processing engines are there. On top of that, it's in its infancy, the the kind of tools, the kind of products you need for data management, for data engineering management just don't exist. And 90% plus of the data engineering is not in the cloud. It is sitting on premise and everything that you, the narrative is very different. Let me give you another interesting anecdote. I was reading through the Snowflake S1. The Snowflake S1 says they have somewhere like, if I recall the number correctly, somewhere like 50 to 60 companies that have more, that pay them more than a million in revenue. And Snowflake charges for the hardware as well. Now you tell me which enterprise can do data engineering in under a million dollars. Nobody can. For us, it is normal to see a a top four bank would spend something like 20, 30 million dollars just on licensing or software for data engineering. You know, they probably spend 40 million dollars on data engineering a year. So if you look at that versus you look at, you know, so majority of the data engineering today sits on premise because there is not enough product in the cloud. It's just the processing engines. You need a lot more on top. Um, and that's what we're building. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting. So I'll just be blunt and say my key concern about this kind of company is essentially the end by end problem. I mean, you've you've got these abstractions that are so complicated. I mean, the APIs are at least well defined at this point, but uh, to me, it seems like you have to build a shim over each of these data engineering things, or you have to unify them somehow, or, or have a common language for inter- integrating them. And 
I'm just wondering, like, okay, let's say I, I build a low-code workflow in Prophecy. How am I, like, how is that materialized into infrastructure? What happens there? Sure, definitely. So so let, let's talk about that, right? First is that the end-cross-end end end problem comes if you're trying to target every infrastructure, right? But the big thing that's happening in the cloud is consolidation. There is consolidation around Databricks and Snowflake. So as far as we are concerned for us as a startup, there are two ecosystems that we care about. If you're not one of them, you know, we don't really care. I mean, okay, you know, you could be Redshift or this, but that's pretty much, you know, the same as Snowflake for us. So that's, so first there is convergence. So we don't need to support 20 different things. The next thing is, so we as a data engineering product sit as a layer on top of your existing systems. So what that means is you come in, you say, I'm going to do drag and drop and I'm going to build a workflow, right? Data flows are very, very easy to build on a visual canvas. I say, here's my source, here's my join, here's my filter, here's my this. As you're doing that, Prophecy side-by-side side is generating very high-quality readable code on Git, and it is on your Git. Yeah, You can take away Prophecy and run it, right? So it's code on your Git. As you're running it, when you're hitting play, you're running it on Spark. So you hit play. After every transform, you can see the data before, and you can see the data after, and that is running against your live Spark cluster that's running on your Databricks, your EMR, whatever your Spark is, right? And then you say, okay, now load this into Snowflake and it'll load it into Snowflake, right? So that's our common customer use case. And the and so we are sitting on top of that. If you want Airflow for scheduling, we will say here is, you know, just point us to your Airflow and here is low-code development on that. We can deploy on that, monitor on that. Basically, so so you just have to go to one of your existing workflows that you just developed and said, say, schedule this one. And you can say, okay, wait for some data to show up in S3, then run this workflow, then this workflow, then this workflow. Again, you can visually draw that. And side by side, you're getting very high quality Airflow code that's being generated on your uh, Git, right? So everything we are doing, we're computing lineage and storing it on your Git. So basically, what we are doing is helping you write code on your Git. The only thing is that to, to develop this code, you don't have to know coding. You can do visual drag and drop and SQL expressions, and that's all you need. What's been the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve so far? We solved some very interesting problems. So, so one thing that we have done is, so first thing is that as you do visual drag and drop development in Prophecy, we are generating high quality readable code side by side. This code structure is where you can see the control flow very quickly. And for each of these, you know, it's very readable. It's usually ends up being better than some the code person can write by hand. The second thing you can do is now you can, you have a code tab, you click the code tab, you go into the code, and now you can edit the code. And you go back to visual and we parse this code. So now you all the changes you made in the code are visible in the visual one. So now we have said, hey, this visual drag and drop development of data flows and coding, we've made it the same thing, right? So, so we have these parsers. But now what we are saying is, wait, 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 all our users want to extend this, right? They want to be like, here is my data quality library and I want to standardize on that and I want to roll it out to my customers. To do that, they can define their own transforms. So when they're defining their transforms, we are generating the code generators and the parsers from their spec. So doing some really complicated stuff there. Our metadata system now merges the metadata and code. And that has been quite an interesting thing to build because it merges the world of code and data. And a lot of the metadata just sits on Git. 
right? When we are computing column level lineage, we are parsing the Spark code and computing lineage, you know, from the Spark code, then aggregating it, then serving it in a very fast fashion. We are doing search. So you can search the contents of this and we'll point and say, hey, here is the expression where you use that particular column, right? So we are searching the entire content of your get. So we, uh, so we are doing that. Also, there's another thing that we do. What another thing we do is we take the legacy ETL products, right? And we have uh, transpilers that can convert them to high quality Spark code. So for example, if you were to say, here is my workflow in Abinitio, can you convert it to Spark? Yes, we can. Informatica, yes, we can. Alteryx, yes, we can. So what we have done is we have written cross compilers where we've reverse engineered the formats of these including Ebenezer, which was a very hard one. They don't even have documentation in the public domain. And I've been, now nobody in our team has ever used it. So we reverse engineered first their format. Then we reverse engineered their programming language, which is not even completely relational. Then we have compiler analyses and optimizations that converts it into high quality readable Spark code. So lots and lots of sophisticated technology under the hood. Why couldn't this have been built earlier? I feel like people have been trying to do low-code data engineering for a while. It's been really hard. Why hasn't it been done earlier? There is just not the skill set to do this kind of thing in the tooling layer. So there is two kinds of engineers, typically. One is like the engineering engineers who are, think of with the engineering culture, think of Google, think of many other companies like that who have a very, very engineering-focused culture right so what they do is they take a problem that is complex and they come up with a solution that is equally complex right so think kubernetes think tensorflow right it's like complex solution to a complex problem the usability is really low in tooling what you need is more of an apple like approach where the technology is complex but the product is simple to use now the other thing is there is some people have tried to build low code products, but they have, you know, there's just not enough technical chops. Like we are doing a whole bunch of stuff. So for example, when you're running a Spark workflow, you know, we go inside the Spark workflow. When you say, hey, I'm running in my ID and you hit play after every step, you can see the intermediate data, few sample rows. You know, to get that, we go inside the Spark's query planner. We insert our own operators, logical operators, physical operators. Then we use, you know, the Spark stat mechanism over WebSockets to send the data back from executors to masters. It never touches disk and you get the result back in three seconds. So to build this product, I've had to know compilers in terms of the C compilers of the world. I've had to know database internals and how to build databases. And I have had to know how to do design, which is basically saying that, can we take this really complex technology and wrap it up into a UI that is very simple for, you know, somebody, a data analyst who uses Alteryx can do it. So it requires a lot of different skills to build this. And the other thing is, you know, who's going to fund it, right? If you look at any big piece of technology, you know, LinkedIn's going to fund it. You know, they're going to fund building of a processing engine. They might fund a Kafka. You know, Yahoo might fund a Hadoop. But what is the usability of those products? Extremely low, right? Because they're built for the engineers. There is no path today in the venture industry and in the software industry to put good amount of funding into a design product. Because you are going to need years of investment. 
right? So for example, even a five trend took five years before Series A. DBT probably took four, five years before Series A. Why? Because nobody's funding it, right? So, so that's the second structural problem is there is not enough funding because you see the, the processing engines get funded. The, uh, they require a lot of R&D, but they get funded by the big tech companies, the LinkedIn's, the Google's, the Yahoo's. Well, uh, the tooling design products, these companies are not funding it. Who will fund it? I just, I just looked at your investors. You, you got Signalfire as an investor. Was Elaine your, uh, was Elaine your lead? No, Ilya is the lead. Who, who um, is it? Who Ilya? Is it? Ilya? Ilya, yeah. Ilya Kirnos. I don't know him. And Ilya is one of the founders of Signalfire. Okay. Right? And he's an ex-Googler, amazing guy. And they, they funded us quite a lot, actually. So, yeah. So we've this, had is a, a- this is a great vision. I love your vision here. Nobody's doing data engineering Apple. Like Apple for data engineering is such a great idea. It's such a pure vision. Yes. And we're super excited about that. We think, yeah, we think that, you know, usability is so super important. Like, and, and part of it comes from the empathy, right? As a high product manager, I would go sit in front of the customer and I can see the customer struggle to get the work done, right? And it's like, no, it has to just work. It has to be, you know, super easy to use. It just works. Good design. What stands between you and Series A level traction? We'll raise Series A in a couple of months. We're just waiting for the VCs will come back after August. So we are working with, so it's been a couple of years since we took a seed round, but we've took, taken like above 7 million. So, so it's a big seed round and we have a big team. Now we have certain customers we are working with. So this way, like our, our first customer is, you know, again, a Fortune 500 company that's, you might associate with credit cards, one of the biggest, most prominent ones in the world. We are now working with top four bank, a top entertainment company, a top insurer. When I say top means it's probably in Fortune 50 or Fortune 100. So it just takes, you know, six to nine months for these contracts to close. There are so many moving pieces. And because we have start, we started at the top end of enterprises, it took us a while. Now the first customers are becoming successful. We're also starting to, you know, we're like, okay, now that we can get these 250K to 750K deals, let us come down market and try to get these 50K deals, right? 25, 50K deals, which is basically trying to show faster or more repeatability, which is what typically people look for Series A. So I think we will be there in eight weeks. We've launched a SaaS version, which actually became usable kind of at Spark Summit, which is just this end of May. So we have some customers closing now. So we're yeah, just doing paperwork with a few customers. I think in series A, we'd be there in eight weeks or so. We'll start raising. And we'll have one last thing is like, we'll have names like nobody else does, right? So we would have like five Fortune 500 companies as our first five customers and, and then some slightly smaller ones, but no startup, no not Databricks, not Snowflake. Nobody gets those customers as their first five customers. Are you feeling any roadblocks? Are you feeling, because I look at your business, I actually look at the, the timing is epic. Your timing is so good because people are starting to realize the whole power of React, but I don't think people realized it. So I just wrote this book about Facebook uh, called Move Fast. There's a big part of that book about React, and I don't think people understand how important React is. Do, do you, it's extremely important. Yes. Right. Um, for us, you know, we are building a large UI system. It's extremely complex, right? Because you're going, 
and building these what we call gems right you're drawing on a canvas with gems and these visual drag and drop gems are there it's you know so there's complex state there then you click and you go go into a code editor that's actually an embedded uh, monaco editor which is the visual studio code you know so we are running that it's it's a complex application right and then we are generating from a spec these gems and the UIs for that, right? Because like I said, we the users can come and put in their own library. So most of our UI is actually generated from this spec, which is so some super exciting and hard stuff to do there. And then, you know, we're getting autocomplete uh, where we are running a language server backend, which is which is saying, hey, it looks like you're trying to write this expression, right? It understands the language, it understands Spark, it understands the columns that are flowing through at this point in time, you know, our expression builder that helps you build expressions. So for example, if in the spec you said, hey, this thing is an expression and uses my incoming columns, when the user goes to a type there, an expression builder will pop up and it'll say, looks like you're trying to write a concat function. Oh, in the concat function, do you want to use one of the columns that you already have? Right. So it understands all of those. And, and to have these components, like without React, we could not build such a complex application that we have been able to build. It's, it's just like, this is not like the regular web page UI. Our UI is extremely complex. We have graphs, we have subgraphs, you know, and there's lineage, which is showing you columns flowing through these. So some really, really sophisticated and hard stuff. So we've been using React a lot. We've moved to TypeScript just because like writing such complex UI is, is just not something that you can do without that kind of thing. So pre-React, we, you know, we would have really, really struggled to build this. Yeah, and and that's why I say your timing is so pure here because the data. I mean, look at Confluent, right? The Confluent just IPO'd, right? Like when Confluent got started, Kafka was really, really tough, right? Like that's that's a hard product to operationalize. That's a hard product for sure. Why? Why is what? What role does Kafka play in data engineering these days? So these days, as we're talking to customers, many of them. Are, as they're moving to the cloud, they're saying that, you know, I'm going to land data, right? Some of them are landing data from their on-premise system to S3, but some are landing it to Kafka. Then you do a bunch of transforms, then you land it to the next Kafka, right? So, so in that sense of transform where you have multiple publishers and multiple subscribers, it's just very easy to say, hey, here is the next data. Every four hours you post it to Kafka, and then all the downstream consumers who want it can just subscribe to it, pull the data off. And then, you know, if one of those systems goes offline, you can just go replay from the Kafka commit log and rebuild the thing that you wanted to build, right? And, and Kafka has become so central. For example, for our own metadata system, right? The backbone of that is Kafka. So for example, metadata seems like a simple problem. It's like, but every time you change a workflow, there is a... Kafka event that says, hey, this workflow changed. Our lineage service is listening to that. And it says, oh, workflow changed. I must recompute lineage, right? It recomputes the lineage, puts the new lineage there. The search service will pick it up and say, hey, lineage changed. I must update my search indexes, right? The execution or scheduling service will look at this and say, hey, looks like the workflow changed. This workflow is scheduled to run at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, I must recompute uh, the jar and redeploy it to my airflow. So Kafka is that backbone, right? Even so Kafka is, so the two use cases I talked about is one is Kafka being used as the data backbone between workflows, right? Where you have multiple publishers and subscribers. And we are seeing that pattern used more and more. The second is Kafka as, as the central eventing 
system where all your various, you can have this decoupled microservice architecture sitting on top of Kafka as we do in our metadata system. So we are seeing both use cases and yeah, and Kafka is, I think, having an impact in both. One is more data, one is more, you know, coordination, I mean, if I may. Your company, do you have to play with Kubernetes in your company or are you more working with managed services? Oh, so we, uh, our entire software, right? So let's talk about our software stack. So our software stack at the bottom, we are written as a Kubernetes operator. We have some customers who are on-premise and some customers who are on the cloud. So we, and most of our customers are since a lot of them in the beginning have been banks and financial institutions. We have to run within their network because we are dealing with their very sensitive data. So we need to install there. So at the bottom, we are written as a Kubernetes operator that's written in Go. On top of that, we have our microservices layer that is written in Scala. And that's because we have to do a lot of compiler work, a lot of, uh, you know, sometimes. So so it's it's just functional programming and, uh, you know, our characters, Kafka and reactive programs and sorry, Scala and reactive programming has is, is like the core of our microservices. And then we have the heavy UI or the, the really complex UI, which is built uh, using React, right? So, so this is there. And so we use Kubernetes a lot. We install in different customer environments. And, uh, you know, if, if you want, like if you, for a customer who was on AWS, we just say, hey, spin up and your EKS, and then we'll install on top of that. So that's typically how we work, but it's, you know, we, we hope that Kubernetes would have more standardization. It, it, it is still tricky because we have some system services like uh, for monitoring and logging, et cetera. And then, you know, when you go to a customer, they're like, oh, no, use ours. And they're like, oh, I want to use Elasticsearch. And they're like, oh, use ours, or they'll say, use your own. So there is a little bit of back and forth there. But yes, so, so we have been using Kubernetes. Another Interesting anecdote is like some companies are very comfortable with us having an operator. Some companies are like, no, 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 we want YAML files that we can inspect. We don't like this operator written in Go, right? But so, so we've had two kind of right two installers now. If I look at the the landing page of your website, your focus is on Apache Spark and Apache Airflow. Such great taste. Why those two pieces of technology? When you think about data engineering, why do you look so closely at Spark and Airflow? Sure. So we have a very different opinion on Spark and Airflow. Spark, we love. And why I look at Spark is that if you look at the data processing, right, there has to be the essential complexity of data engineering requires you to do things that SQL cannot do. But SQL is still the most prominent thing there, right? The programming model of it, right? So for some things, you want to use SQL. For some things, an abstraction above SQL. For some things, an abstraction below SQL. So what Spark allows us to do is to have a SQL productivity layer when we want it and write stuff in SQL. Then when I have something that does not fit in SQL and requires me to write code, I can just drop down and write the code. The second thing, it's it's open source. and 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 so as for our customers who have been paying millions of dollars you know to vendors over many years on premise as they come to the cloud you know they don't want to get stuck again so partly it is driven from what our customers want who want spark and partly it is 
from the fact that you know it, it's open source it's going to be free for 20 cents on the dollar i can get it from any cloud provider it's ubiquitous right if i want the the really good databricks version i can get that if i want the amazon basics yeah you know i can go get emr but that said so if if our customer writes you know their 50000 workflows against spark they know forever that they are not going to get locked in the second thing like i said the processing had gives me it gives me the sql layer that i definitely want but then it gives me other things and programmability around it that that is also great now the sql you know will become better over time and now the you know at least databricks is adding the photon engine so they'll be able to do bi but that's uh, so spark we heavily believe in is the right thing for transformation and i have seen tons and tons of etl right i've seen it in on on prem i've seen like can't tell you how many workflows i have read the code of especially even writing the compiler now that's number one for airflow we care less about airflow it's like we had to build put some scheduler there if it were airflow that be fine if it were you know one of the new ones prefect or dagster you know we don't really care so right now we have added low code on airflow we can do the same on prefect we can do the same on dagster it just like so for us the hard part of scheduling right so like like i told you for our customers they're like i have 20000 workflows and they have dependencies across them and and you know using lineage we can see what the dependencies are and they said generate the schedule right and then so a lot of value is in generating the right schedule a lot of value is having monitoring and those things and then the actual last mile physical scheduling of that is not that much of a value add uh, to at least our customers so we don't care airflow can do it fine right the problem was that airflow couldn't handle much in terms of scale i don't know where dagster and prefect are with being able to handle like 10000 workflows and 100000 workflows so yeah so airflow is like it's like fine it's it's the best product out there not super excited about it but it's okay maybe you know so we'll go with whoever is most popular do you think it's a multi winner thing do you think dagster and uh, prefect are, are are direct competitors or is this a uh, divergence I think Prefect seems to be a direct competitor with Airflow, and I haven't spent as much time looking at Dagster, but seems like Prefect and this is like yeah similar stuff. People use Airflow, people will use Prefect, and I don't think there is. It depends on the use case. For simple use cases, there might be much something to choose from them, but for you know for the more complex use cases that we get, you know they are too low level anyway, so it doesn't really matter. as long as they can schedule a certain number of graphs and and run that reliably you know that's fine but but let me say none of them is ready for an enterprise workload today i'm really interested in what you're doing what do you need right now like are you trying to find more customers are you like trying to iron out the infrastructure you're trying to recruit like what's going on with the company like so i think our biggest challenge is that the what i would call the the thought makers right the podcaster startup engineer junior vc nexus just doesn't understand data engineering very well they don't have the historical context and like so i can talk about what the prophecy pillars are what are the main things we are doing and what's important to the customer i can talk about the programming model of which one will win but what we are looking for there is right now to say that and and we can talk about you know of course like what the future looks like for data engineering and 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 I know you've been super excited about dbt so I came I was like he's going to ask me about dbt so oh, I have yeah. oh, oh, we don't oh, have oh. to talk about it <laughs> no 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 it could be very negative <laughs> oh wow okay please lightning rod give us the lightning rod okay 
So you want to ask a question about DBT or? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, just let me. Mean, okay, I'll give you, a, give you a question about DBT. DBT, overrated, underrated? <laughs> so DBT is extremely overrated, right? So, wow. so let us, let me give you like, again, like I say, I've come in historical work, working with large enterprises for many, many years. And if we look at DBT, one good thing that they do is that they are bringing software engineering practices to data engineering, right? And this is something the customers want, and this is the future. We do it also in Prophecy, right? You're doing visual drag and drop, that's code on Git, tests on Git, CI, CD, you get everything, right? So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is the question of the programming model, right? So if you look at, so what does DBT do, right? So for us, we can consider it as one of the backends because as you're doing visual development, Prophecy can generate Scala code, it can generate Python code, and we can generate SQL++. It's the same to us, right? So Scala has SBT, you know, SQL++ has DBT, right? So in one sense, it's like a build system, like a Maven or this, right? So that, that's first part of DBT. The second part of DBT is they have macros on SQL. So that is like Jinja templates, curly curly variables, functions. So they've added a few constructs there. It's like, fine, you know, if you're writing SQL small setup, that is great, right? But then, you know, if you look at an enterprise that we work with, they need 100 times more product, right, than what DBT provides. And we've talked about a lot of that, right? And then, so the question really is, what is the future of DBT? I, you know, it's great. Some startups, some small setups will use it. And I think it will just wither away. There is like, this will be one of those shocking times, like early 2000s, where we would be like, things got so crazy that a company that added Jinja templates on top of SQL got valued at one and a half billion. Like if you look at what their proprietary technology is, it's like, okay, not even proprietary, right? They have an open source Jinja template on this. Like when did a Jinja template company or an, did is SBT or Maven a billion dollar company, right? If you look at what they're building, there is just nothing much there. They make it convenient to add these variables and stuff. But then beyond that, you know, there, there is not much to it. So if you look at the future of data engineering, if you say there is going to be tomorrow a $10 billion company, a $20 billion company, something as big as Snowflake, as big as Databricks that does data engineering on top, you know, that thing probably won't be like SQL with is in that, right? That's not what it's going to look like. So, and then it's not just that they don't have enough product. It's also that the direction is wrong. It's like they're working with simpler ETL. So they take go to SQL and then they add variables, then they add functions, then they add macros and they'll keep adding this, right? If you look at the complex ETL we deal with, you know, they will just go on and reinvent Python slowly, one step at a time, right? And then who wants their code to be in this some proprietary SQL++ language, right? After a while, so it's good for data analysts. I think they have a niche. They don't compete with us. No enterprise would use them for their core data engineering. So I think it is one of the biggest. We look back at this moment with a lot of amusement that you had a product like that, which had no technology and, you know, became a billion dollar company. So it's fascinating. It doesn't affect us. All right. We have a in the race, but it's, it's just like there's nothing there. Wow. Okay. All right. It's kind of hilarious. No, we, uh, we can talk about what the, you can tell me what the technology is in, inside there, right? Or what is the... Listen, man, I, I, I don't... Okay, look, DBT confuses me. I don't know a whole lot about it. I've done some interviews about it. I'm very confused. 
Um, I read through all the documentation. I was like, okay, maybe we can use it as a backend, just like we use Scala and SBT as a backend. And when we started looking at it, right, in, in great detail, I went through the documentation and I'm like, what is this? This is just SQL with a few templates in there. And it's like, okay, there is, there's a good community and they're asking each other questions. I mean, so, so they've given some things, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I am surprised to see that there's nothing. And so we can uh, talk about it after a few years. You know, there was a NoSQL fad and then there was a Hadoop fad and so many companies went, right? I There were people who are like, hey, how do you do this in DBT? And somebody's like, hey, why don't you use talent to do this in DBT because DBT doesn't do it. Like, you have to go through their forums to see all the amusing stuff. But yeah, it's not going to be a big thing in a few years from now. So, you know, I normally don't do this on air, but I am just very interested in your company and I would love to be potentially involved I think this is going to be a really interesting um, series A that you're go- you're pulling towards. I think you're. I mean, uh, have you gotten much investor interest yet for a series A? We did talk to investors, a, a couple of investors, not right now, uh, quite a few months back. Like we talked last year, and they were like, we had like one customer, and they were like, we're looking for some more GTM maturity, and now we are probably going to have many. Right. And uh, so now this time, I think we'll be fine. We've, we've just told most investors that we are not raising right now. So if I get a, a request, I just say, hey, we are raising in September. So not having any investor conversations right now. But, you know, so it'll be, yeah, we're super excited to, yeah, uh, I, I don't know what part of it makes it, but definitely we're super excited to have you in, get involved. Right. We can talk about that offline, perhaps. Right. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's get let's cut to the chase there and maybe just to wrap up. Okay, here's my last question. A little from far left field. So machine learning and data engineering, what's the opportunity there for you? Or what's the overlap there in that market? How, do you think of that? Do you think of machine learning as sort of a downstream thing you can attack after you solve data engineering? So one of the main things to realize is, is that first, a lot of the work, 80 to 90% of the work of machine learning is data engineering, right? And for example, I'll give you an example. We had a customer in one of the top telecom companies in Europe come to us and say, my team is trying to buy these feature stores. And these feature stores are supposed to give us lineage and say this column, this is how it was derived and build these features. They're like, when we look at that, with a couple of abstractions, you can build a lot more than these feature stores give us, right? So basically what, what is going to happen is that you know, a lot of the feature development, having the feature stores, the metadata. So now you have this metadata system that has your entire data engineering system in it, all the information about it end to end, right? And now you have one more step to go, which is like, I am computing these features, which is essentially columns for machine learning. And that entire feature engineering is going to move into this core data engineering. So what will happen? And then feature store is just a metadata system where you can query the features, right? So for example, you know, the transformations for getting the features in, the transformations for managing the feature store, all of that belongs in your data engineering system. So everything outside of the core machine learning training algorithm very naturally belongs into our data engineering product. And even though some people might be like this Tecton and other feature store companies, they are going to get eaten because we already... Wait, wait, wait. You, think that you think the feature store companies get acquired, you're saying? No, no, no. They're just... So the thing is the feature store companies, I see that the data engineering products will subsume them because you see, they're building feature store, but feature store is just a slightly different packaging of ETL, right? And metadata. 
so basically right now they are building it but we have so much more built in data engineering in lineage in transform letting people transform letting people manage them that feature store as a separate category will probably get subsumed by the data engineering systems so like you said what is an area to expand well feature store will probably become a part of our product soon and we have customers asking for it and saying you can do better than the tecton and these companies so the data engineering will expand to reach that point i think the co- except for the core machine learning training you know apart from that rest of it goes to data engineering tools is is my take on it and again awesome. you know a lot of controversial takes so that should be great fantastic interview just fantastic i love your vision it's really interesting that sounds great <laughs>